Section 20 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 1. This is a LibreVox recording. All LibreVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibreVox.org. Recording by Daniel T. Miller. Abraham Lincoln. A History, Volume 1, by John G. Nicolay and John Hay, Section 20, Chapter 20, The Drift of Politics. The repeal of the Missouri Compromise made the slavery question paramount in every state of the Union. The boasted finality was a broken reed the lifeboat of compromise a hopeless wreck. If the agreement of a generation could be thus annulled in a breath, was there any safety even in the Constitution itself? This feeling communicated itself to the northern states at the very first note of warning, and every man's party fealty was at once decided by his toleration of or opposition to slavery. While the fate of the Nebraska bill hung in a doubtful balance in the House, the feeling found expression in letters, speeches, meetings, petitions, and remonstrances. Men were for or against the bill. Every other political subject was left in abeyance. The measure once passed and the compromise repealed, the first natural impulse was to combine organize and agitate for its restoration this was the ready-made common ground of cooperation it is probable that this merely defensive energy would have been overcome and dissipated had it not at this juncture been inspirited and led by the faction known as the free soil party of the country composed mainly of men of independent anti-slavery views, who had during four presidential campaigns been organized as a distinct political body, with no near hope of success, but animated mainly by the desire to give expression to their deep personal convictions. If there were demagogues here and there among them, seeking merely to create a balance of power for bargain and sale, they were unimportant in number, and only of local influence, and soon became deserters. There was no mistaking the earnestness of the body of this faction. A few fanatical men, who had made it the vehicle of violent expressions, had kept it under the ban of popular prejudice. It had long been held up to public odium as a, a revolutionary band of abolitionists. Most of the abolitionists were doubtless in this party, but the party was not all composed of abolitionists. Despite objurgation and contempt, it had become since 1840 a constant and growing factor in politics. It had operated as a negative balance of power in the last three presidential elections, causing by its diversion of votes and more especially by its relaxing influence upon parties, the success of the Democratic candidate 
James K. Polk in 1844, the Whig candidate General Taylor in 1848, and the Democratic nominee Franklin Pierce in 1852. This small party of anti-slavery veterans, over 158,000 voters in the aggregate, and distributed in detachments of from 3,000 to 30,000 in 12 of the free states, now came to the front, and with its newspapers and speakers trained in the discussion of the subject, and its committees and affiliations already in action and correspondence, bore the brunt of the fight against the repeal. Hitherto its aims had appeared utopian, and its resolves had been denunciatory and exasperating. Now, combining wisdom with opportunity, it became conciliatory, and, abating something of its abstractions, made itself the exponent of a demand for a present and practical reform, a simple return to the ancient faith and landmarks. It labored specially to bring about the dissolution of the old party organizations and the formation of a new one, based upon the general policy of resisting the extension of slavery. Since, however, the repeal had shaken, but not obliterated old party lines, this effort succeeded only in favorable localities. Illustration Historical map of the United States in 1854, showing the various extensions of territory, etc. Note. The number under the name of a state indicates the date of its admissions into the Union. The boundary between the United States and Mexico previous to 1845 and 1848 is indicated thus. Plus, plus, plus. For the present, party disintegration was slow. Men were reluctant to abandon their old-time principles and associations. The united efforts of Douglas and the administration held the body of the Northern Democrats to his fatal policy, though protest and defections became alarmingly frequent. On the other hand, the great mass of Northern Whigs promptly opposed the repeal, and formed the bulk of the opposition, nevertheless losing perhaps as many pro-slavery Whigs as they gained anti-slavery Democrats. The real and effective gain, therefore, was the more or less thorough alliance of the Whig Party and the Free Soil Party of the Northern States. Wherever that was successful, it gave immediate and available majorities to the opposition, which made their influence felt even in the very opening of the popular contest following the Congressional repeal. It happened that this was a year for electing congressmen. The Nebraska Bill did not pass till the end of May, and the political excitement was at once transferred from Washington to every district of the whole country. It may be said with truth that the year 1854 formed one continuous and solid political campaign from January to November, rising in interest and earnestness from first to last, 
and engaging in the discussion more fully than had ever occurred in previous American history all the constituent elements of our population. In the southern states the great majority of people welcomed, supported, and defended the repeal of the Missouri Compromise, it being consistent with their pro-slavery feelings, and apparently favorable to their pro-slavery interests. The Democratic Party in the South, controlling a majority of slave states, was of course a unit in its favor. The Whig Party, however, having carried two slave states for Scott in 1852, and holding a strong minority in the remainder, was not so unanimous. Seven Southern representatives and two Southern senators had voted against the Nebraska bill, and many individual voters condemned it as an act of bad faith, as the abandonment of the accepted finality, and as the provocation of a dangerous anti-slavery reaction. But public opinion in that part of the Union was fearfully tyrannical and intolerant and opposition dared only to manifest itself to Democratic Party organization, not to these Democratic Party measures. The Whigs of the South were therefore driven precipitately to division. Those of extreme pro-slavery views, like Dixon of Kentucky, who, when he introduced his amendment, declared, Upon the question of slavery I know no Whiggery and no democracy, went boldly and at once over into the Democratic camp, while those who retained their traditional party name and flag were sundered from their ancient allies in the northern states by the impossibility of taking up the latter's anti-slavery war cry. At this juncture, the political situation was further complicated by the sudden rise of an additional factor in politics. The American Party, popularly called the Know-Nothings. Essentially it was a revival of the extinct Native American faction, based upon a jealousy of and discrimination against foreign-born voters, desiring an extension of their period of naturalization and their exclusion from office, also based upon a certain hostility to the Roman Catholic religion. It had been reorganized as a secret order in the year 1853, and seizing upon the political disappointments following General Scott's overwhelming defeat for the presidency in 1852, and profiting by the disintegration caused by the Nebraska Bill it rapidly gained recruits both north and south. Operating in entire secrecy, the country was startled by the sudden appearance in one locality after another on election day of a potent and unsuspected political power, which in many instances pushed both the old organizations not only to disastrous, but even to ridiculous defeat. Both North and South, its forces were recruited mainly from the Whig Party, though malcontents from all quarters rushed to group themselves upon its narrow platform, and to participate in the exciting but delusive triumphs of its temporary and local ascendancy.
when in the opening of the anti-Nebraska contest, the Free Soil leaders undertook the formation of a new party to supersede the old. They had, because of their generally democratic antecedents, with great unanimity proposed that it be called the Republican Party, thus reviving the distinctive appellation by which the followers of Jefferson were known in the early days of the Republic. Considering the fact that Jefferson had originated the policy of slavery restriction in his draft of the Ordinance of 1784, the name became singularly appropriate, and wherever the Free Soilers succeeded in forming a coalition, it was adopted without question. But the refusal of the Whigs in many states to surrender their name and organization and more especially the abrupt appearance of the know-nothings on the field of parties retarded the general coalition between the whigs and the free soilers which so many influences favored as it turned out a great variety of party names were retained or adopted in the congressional and state campaigns of eighteen fifty four the designation of anti-nebraska being perhaps the most common and certainly for the moment the most serviceable since denunciation of the nebraska bill was the one all-pervading bond of sympathy and agreement among men who differed very wildly on almost all other political topics this affiliation however was confined exclusively to the free states in the slave states the opposition to the administration dared not raise the anti-Nebraska banner, nor could it have found followers, and it was not only inclined, but forced to make its battle either under the old name of Whigs, or, as became more popular, under the new appellation of Americans, which grew into a more dignified synonym for know-nothings. Thus confronted, the Nebraska and anti-Nebraska factions, or, more philosophically speaking, the pro-slavery and anti-slavery sentiment of the several American states, battled for political supremacy with a zeal and determination only manifested on occasions of deep and vital concern to the welfare of the Republic. However languidly certain elements of American society may perform what they deem the drudgery of politics, they do not shrink from it when they hear warning of real danger. The alarm of the nation on the repeal of the Missouri Compromise was serious and startling. All ranks and occupations therefore joined with a new energy in the contest it provoked. Particularly was the religious sentiment of the North profoundly moved by the moral question involved. Perhaps for the first time in our modern politics, the pulpit vied with the press, and the church with the campaign club, in the work of debate and propagandism. The very inception of the struggle had provoked bitter words. Before the third Nebraska bill had yet been introduced into the Senate, the then little band of free soilers in Congress, Chase, Sumner, 
Giddings, and three others, had issued a newspaper address calling the repeal a gross violation of a sacred pledge, a criminal betrayal of precious rights, an atrocious plot, designed to cover up from public reprehension mediated bad faith, etc. Douglas, seizing only too gladly the pretext to use denunciation instead of argument, replied in his opening speech, in turn stigmatizing them as abolition confederates assembled in secret conclave on the holy sabbath while other senators were engaged in divine worship plotting in the name of the holy religion perverting and calumniating the committee appealing with a smiling face to his courtesy to get time to circulate the document before its infamy could be exposed, etc. Side note. Globe, March 14th, 1854, page 617. Side note. Ibid, page 618. The keynotes of the discussion thus given were well sustained on both sides, and crimination and recrimination increased with the heat and intensity of the campaign. The gradual disruption of parties and the new and radical attitudes assumed by men of independent thought gave ample occasion to indulge in such epitaphs as apostates, renegades, and traitors. Unusual acrimony grew out of the zeal of the church and its ministers. The clergymen of the northern states not only spoke against the repeal from the pulpits, but forwarded energetic petitions against it to Congress. 3,050 clergymen of New England of different denominations joining the signatures in one protest. We protest against it, they said as a great moral wrong, as a breach of faith eminently unjust to the moral principles of the community, and subversive of all confidence in national engagements, as a measure full of danger to the peace and even the existence of our beloved Union, and exposing us to the righteous judgment of the Almighty. In return, Douglas made a most virulent onslaught on the political action. Here we find, he retorted, that a large body of preachers, perhaps three thousand, following the lead of a circular which was issued by the abolition confederates in this body, calculated to deceive and mislead the public, have here come forward with an atrocious falsehood, and an atrocious calumny against the Senate desecrated the pulpit and prostituted the sacred desk to the miserable and corrupting influence of party politics. All his newspapers and partisans throughout the country caught the style and spirit of his warfare, and boldly denied the moral right of the clergy to take part in politics otherwise than by a silent vote. But they— on the other hand, persisted all the more earnestly in justifying their interference 
in moral questions wherever they appeared and were clearly sustained by the public opinion of the north though the repeal was forced through congress under party pressure and by the sheer weight of a large democratic majority in both branches it met from the first a decided and unmistakable popular condemnation in the free states while the measure was yet under discussion in the house in march new hampshire led off by an election completely obliterating the eighty-nine democratic majority in her legislature connecticut followed in her footsteps early in april long before november it was evident that the political revolution among the people of the north was thorough and that election day was anxiously awaited merely to record the popular verdict already decided the influence of this result upon parties old and new is perhaps best illustrated in the organization of the thirty-fourth congress chosen at these elections during the year eighteen fifty four which witnessed the repeal of the missouri compromise each congress in ordinary course meets for the first time about one year after its members are elected by the people and the influence of politics during the interim needs always to be taken into account in this particular instance the effect had if anything been slightly reactionary and the great contest for the speakership during the winter of eighteen fifty five to eighteen fifty six may therefore be taken as a fair manifestation of the spirit of politics in eighteen fifty four the strength of the preceding house of representatives which met in december eighteen fifty three had been whigs seventy one free soilers four democrats one fifty nine a clear democratic majority of eighty four in the new congress there were in the house as nearly as the classification could be made about one hundred eight anti-nebraska members nearly forty know-nothings and about seventy-five democrats the remaining members were undecided the proud democratic majority of the pierce election was annihilated but as yet the new party was merely inchoate its elements distrustful jealous and discordant the feuds and battles of a quarter of a century were not easily forgotten or buried the democratic members boldly nominating mr richardson the house leader on the nebraska bill as their candidate for speaker made a long and determined push for success but his highest range of votes was about seventy-four to seventy-six while through one hundred twenty-one ballotings continuing from december third to january twenty-third the opposition remained divided mr banks the anti-nebraska favorite running at one time up to one o six within seven votes of an election at this point richardson finding it a hopeless struggle withdrew his name as a candidate and the democratic strength was transferred to another but with no better prospects finally seeing no chance of otherwise terminating the contest 
the house yielded to the inevitable domination of the slavery question and resolved on february second by a vote of one thirteen to one o four to elect under the plurality rule after the next three ballotings under this rule notwithstanding the most strenuous efforts to rescind it nathaniel p banks of massachusetts was chosen speaker by one hundred and three votes against one hundred votes for william aiken of south carolina with thirty scattering the ruthless repeal of the missouri compromise had effectively broken the legislative power of the democratic party end of chapter twenty end of section twenty Recording by Daniel T. Miller I blog at d-e-e-t-e-e-m-i-l-l-e-r dot blogspot dot com